This is Works in Progress, a podcast of the UCLA School of the Arts and Architecture. I'm Avishai Artsy. When Susan Lee Foster gets in front of an audience, she doesn't spend much time standing behind a podium or pointing at slides. The choreographer and scholar dances freely around the stage, her movements underlining and sometimes building on her words. The performer produces a semiosis in motion, one that evaporates more quickly than that of the writer, whose trace, although more durable, is nonetheless impermanent. That's Foster delivering a danced lecture called Choreographies of Writing in 2011. Yes, I've been committed to that, um, to choreographing my lectures for really a long time now, 30 years or more, for two reasons, really. First, it occurred to me that I needed to provide the viewers, the audience, with an, an example of what I was talking about, and also an example of why it's so difficult to talk about it. <laughs> so I, I wanted to, as it were, rub the audience's faces in the fact of dancing. But I also wanted to offer them the opportunity to reflect on the fact that all lectures are performances. And the best lecturers are people who know that. Foster is a distinguished professor in the Department of World Arts and Cultures Dance here at UCLA, where she's taught since 2001. Before that, she chaired the dance department at UC Riverside in the 1990s and established the first doctoral-level program in critical dance studies in the U.S. She also taught choreography and dance scholarship at UC Davis. Her research aims to deconstruct positive and negative stereotypes about dance. She'll deliver the 129th Faculty Research Lecture at UCLA on April 14th. It's titled, What Dancing Does, and she joined Works in Progress for a preview. It's a considerable honor, and as as far as my research has been able to indicate, it's the first time in the history of these lectures that it's been devoted to dance. I think it's uh, quite extraordinary, um, given that 105 years ago it was illegal to dance on a University of California campus. <laughs> but why was it illegal? I mean, I don't know the particulars of the reasoning, but there are these long-standing associations with dance concerning, you know, sexual impropriety, uh, irrationality, the base appetites, or you know, instinctual primitive, all those incredibly misguided stereotypes. Do you think some of those stereotypes still exist to this day? Of course. There still tends to be this assumption of these very simplified positive things that dance offers, or these very simplified, prejudicial, uh, horrible things that dance does to one. And in fact, part of what I'm trying to do in the lecture is suggests that dance is really a very, very complex uh, phenomenon, you know, physiologically, psychologically, socially, politically. Hmm. Um, You dedicate this talk to your dissertation advisor and mentor, Hayden White. Can you tell us who he was and why he mattered to you? Um, He was a meta-historian. He was someone who proposed that we should read histories for their narrative construction. And this rubbed the profession the wrong way, but it made him a champion of 
many social justice issues. And he was an extraordinary intellectual with a tremendous command of uh, so many different fields. But he was also very uh, interested in feminism, very interested in the body, and he was a great dancer. And how did that mode of historical thought influence your own take on dance history and dance criticism? When I studied with him, he was working on a theory of rhetoric, and in particular how narratives use certain kinds of tropes uh, in order to put forward uh, their argument. And I thought that that was a really interesting rubric within which to analyze dance. So part of what I'm talking about in the lecture is dance as a form of rhetorical persuasion. Right. Um, in this lecture, you talk about thinking and the thinking that even happens outside of the brain, outside of the, you know, the cognitive processes that we're familiar with. Can you talk about other ways of thinking and how dance employs those ways of thinking? You know, this is what I'm working on right now, it, and it is incredibly exciting. It's a major paradigm shift in cognitive studies, as far as I can tell. And, you know, I'm coming at this from very outside the field. But it's both that thinking occurs outside the brain and that thinking is never only in the brain. So some of these researchers are using robotics and uh, designing experiments in which they try to understand uh, neural circuitry and what is actually required in order to accomplish certain kinds of actions or even to make certain kinds of decisions. And some people have built these robots that walk without anything like a brain controlling it. And they've deduced from that that even our physicality has what they call a morphological intelligence. It has intelligence built into the tendons and connective tissue and the muscles and the way that the uh, bones themselves are, are constructed. Um, and they're, they're also finding out lots of things about how certain varieties of memory do not need the brain. It's absolutely fascinating. It reminds me of what researchers have found about the octopus, right? That each the octopus has a small brain in each of its arms and they can communicate with each other without communicating with the central brain. And that must speak also to the mind-body connection, which is something that you've spent a lot of time studying and thinking about too. Yeah, I mean, it, it's almost the case that we have to question that very term, mind-body. <laughs> Right, because it suggests a dichotomy or distinction when really they're completely intertwined. Exactly. Yeah, and the way that memory and trauma is stored in the body too, right? There's a whole field For of sure. study in that. For sure, yeah. So how does bodily motion help us make sense of the world and the way that we move through the world and the way that we receive senses through our bodies? How is that a form of thinking and of understanding? The people who are working on this approach to cognitive studies, they're looking at the idea that instead of perceiving individual stimuli and then responding to those, that we're constantly integrating varieties of information that we receive from all of our sense systems, including the proprioceptive, which is our sense of where our muscles are and how tense they are at any given moment. And that helps us understand where gravity is in relationship to our bodies. So 
given that we're integrating all that information all the time, we're looking at what the environment affords, what it enables us to do. For example, the surface of water is not something that affords walking for humans, but for water bugs, it's perfectly stable, right? So they've done this research, for example, with baseball. How do you catch a fly ball? And the traditional assumption would be that you calculate its parabolic curve and the level of acceleration that's going on, and then you draw an angle and make the geometry happen in your brain, and then you run to that place and catch it. And in fact, that's not what happens at all. You run to the place where you can no longer see the ball accelerating towards you. And so it's the ball affording a certain perception of itself that allows you to know that it's catchable. But, but the takeaway for me here is that it's often our perception of our relationship to something that comes first. You know, it's not, can water be walked upon, but can I walk on the water? That's right. Can, can I climb that, you know, mountainside, not can someone, or is that mountainside climbable? Because sure, certainly there are lizards that could do it or very right. skilled humans. Right. Or there would be young people who could do it and not older right. people who could do it. Right. Yeah. So yeah. We, we see the world in relationship to our abilities to... Uh, navigate it or, you know, conquer it or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. What about gestures? So you talk about different gestures and how they take on different meanings over time and across cultures. Can you give us examples of, or at least one example of a gesture that might change its meaning or might have different meanings depending on where you are or when you are? The one that I always love to use is that in the 18th century, this means envy. And you're putting your middle finger to your temple. That's right. And now none of us would understand that that's what that means. As far as I can tell, that would be a meaningless gesture today. (laughs) And, you know, um, rhetoric books from classical literature are full of gestures that no longer have have those meanings. Um, You know, here's a new one that's just come into... That's just your hands up as in the hands up, don't shoot. Exactly. Um, thing right. that you'd see, like what you'd see at Black Lives Matter protests. Yeah, right. Or, um, you know, black solidarity from... Just you know, the, the fist in the air. Yeah. 70s, yeah. So there's gestures that come into meaning. And I, I suppose there are gestures that might be insulting in some countries or cultures and not in others. Right? Oh, for like, sure. Like the OK sign or something. Oh, for sure. You can really make mistakes. <laughs> right. I think the, the V for victory could be offensive if your hand is pointed in the wrong direction too. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, so there are gestures that lose meaning over time. But what, what about in dance too? I mean, there must be gestures that are very specific to dance that w- we don't necessarily employ in our day-to-day movements. There are uh, gestural repertoires that are used in different kinds of dance. Bharatanatyam has a huge number of mudras that it uses in order to tell stories kind of like the way we would use pantomime, but they're integrated very differently into the dancing itself, but they're primarily um, gestures of the hands and eyes and head. Ballet has a different set. I'm sure like Japanese no theater also must have its own. And if you're coming from outside the culture, you could appreciate the dance and you might see beauty in it, but you may miss subtext, right? If If you're not familiar with what those movements mean to the people who created it. That's right. So do you think that implies that 
dance requires cultural context to understand narratives, if there is a narrative in the dance? I mean, that's, uh, that's something that people have argued <laughs> over, especially with the increase in circulation of dances from around the world that's taken place in the last, you know, 50 years. I think that it's not absolutely necessary in order, to, as you say, to appreciate the dance, but in order to really understand the complexities of both its aesthetics and its politics, um, you want to know much more about the cultural context in which it has been made. I wonder, like, also, does, does dance gain or lose cultural power? Like, I'm thinking of, like, when Stravinsky's Rite of Spring was first performed, that was quite radical, you know, and then, you know, decades later, it might not have the same sort of shock value that it might have had 100 years ago. Absolutely. And that and it was, you know, shocking for very specific reasons. You know, the the whole idea of having um, dancers inwardly rotate and, um, you know, present themselves in these very awkward and contorted shapes was considered very offensive. It was offensive to like, standards of of taste of dance of like That's ballet right. and you know the, what what people thought was beautiful yes notions of harmony grace beauty yeah i'm sure that modern dance if if somebody saw modern dance 100 years ago they might not even recognize it as dance right well i mean it's interesting the first modern dancers definitely challenged people's perceptions both of what the body could do and should do and certainly of what women could do and should do it must make you think of what dance might look like, you know, decades from now that we might not even recognize as dance in our moment. You see, I, I've lived long enough to have seen what hip hop has done in terms of absolutely transforming the aesthetic basis of social dance. It's really interesting. I mean, you do. And you mentioned hip hop in your lecture. What is it about hip hop dance that changed our understanding of the aesthetics of social dance? Like, what, what is it that was different? I think the person who has the most compelling argument about this is a scholar named Randy Martin. And he's arguing that hip hop and skateboarding both altered our kinesthetic relationship to gravity and gave us a certain comfort with precarity and with uh, quick-witted responses to that precarity. And that that was just an utterly different kinesthene. Like you have an episteme where you, there's a certain ground base of assumptions that a group of people share about how the world is constructed. And this is the kinesthetic equivalent of that. Hmm. Like, like is hip-hop an example of a kind of dance that transmits cultural ideas and values since when hip-hop was originated dance was seen as one of the main elements of it along with you know emceeing and djing and graffiti yes i think it you know initially transmitted all kinds of values around being in a certain kind of tacit dialogue with your um, friends and the people that you're standing by in times of duress the history of the form, most scholars agree that after that initial period of uh, solidarity around the protest of uh, social conditions of urban decay and 
the way that marginalized communities were being further marginalized in urban centers across the US, that the market-driven forces of uh, selling songs and then selling videos uh, transformed hip hop into um, a big commercial success, but that was based a lot on uh, racial stereotypes and on uh, highly sexualized roles for both male and female performers. And that then what happened as the internet took off is that hip hop just immediately catapulted around the globe and it started getting taken up by various marginalized groups worldwide who felt a kinship with its initial impulse around protest uh, and then they adapted it and inflected it with their local identities and concerns so that it it's now doing both <laughs> you know it's a it it's a highly commercial highly successful mainstream form that gets performed, you know, at Super Bowl halftime or whatever. But it's also something that young people are doing on street corners, you know, as a form of creating community and solidarity and uh, affirmation of their identities. And there's a long history of dance as a form of protest. And I guess you could also flip it and say protest as a form of dance, right? Like the the, the physical gathering of people in a street could even be seen as a form of dance. And sometimes there is like literally dancing happening in the street during protests. There's lots of dancing that's been happening around Black Lives Matter events. And there have been many, many examples of dancing. Um, during the uprisings in Istanbul three, four years ago in protest of Erdogan's efforts to neoliberalize portions of the city. It was dance that people were doing as a form of protest. One thing that I found interesting in reading your lecture is um, looking at the history of dance and slavery. And often we use dance as a, an expression of freedom, of liberation, but you've looked at examples in the past and in um, the transatlantic slave trade of dance as a tool of oppression. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, it it is a a historical fact of white supremacist uh, treatment of black people across this period of time um, that they were that black slaves were called upon to exhibit dancing either as a form of assessment enabling possible slave owners to decide which slave they want to buy or as a form of um, entertainment and in both cases, you know, it was very much coerced and placed uh, the dancer in a, a situation of extreme duress, even while dancing. How did slaves um, continue to dance past the auction market, you know, on plantations? How did dance figure in their lives? Well, they were often asked to come and dance and entertain, right, at parties and things. And then occasionally they also would be able to get together on their own in very covert situations, always very tense situations for fear of being discovered. And then they could create their own dances. And it's been shown that many of these were highly satirical of the uh, dances of their owners. 
<laughs> so that was one way that they could sort of reclaim their power, I suppose, in, in a limited way. That's happened to various, when native peoples were banned from dancing on their reservations at the end of the 19th century, Buffalo Bill, Cody, went around hiring them to dance in his Wild West shows. And it's pretty clear that they did that as a combination of getting access to their dances and having some place where they could perform them, um, but also of presenting very satirical versions of stereotypes of themselves and really laughing about those. Huh, that's so interesting. Um, we're now in this place uh, within the university of thinking about how to decolonize our curriculum and our pedagogy. What role do you think dance plays in that conversation? I think it plays a central role. I mean, I would like to think that it does. I think that we have to move beyond the prejudice that uh, knowledge is language-based. I think we have to uh, continue to challenge these mind-body divisions that produce hierarchies in which certain kinds of knowledge or certain kinds of activities are more elite or more valued or more esteemed than others. Dance gives us a real opportunity to challenge associations with the feminine, with the irrational, with the superficial or frivolous, or, you know, with dance is only, you know, recreational, right? Uh, gives us a real opportunity to challenge those things. I, I honestly think that um, the University of California has been a real leader in this area for decades because they have seen creative activity as a form of research. And the faculty at the University of California are charged with the production of new knowledge through their research. And dance making is a form of knowledge making. And the University of California, all 10 campuses agree about that, which is really quite exciting because there are lots of places that don't. Um, one thing that I've heard people say over and over again is that when the pandemic's over, they can't wait to go out dancing. And I count myself as one of those people. What is it that we're missing out on when you know we're dancing alone in our living rooms um, and not at a nightclub or at a, a venue together? Yeah, that is such a good question. But I think one of the things is the, the power of coming into synchrony with others and with music and the, the fact of moving collectively together while at the same time celebrating individual distinctiveness is an immensely pleasurable and affirming activity. That was Susan Lee Foster, Distinguished Professor in the Department of World Arts and Culture's Dance. She'll deliver the 129th Faculty Research Lecture at UCLA on April 14th at 4 p.m. It's free and open to the public and will be online. Find more information and a link to register at arts.ucla.edu. You've been listening to Works in Progress, a podcast of the UCLA School of the Arts and Architecture. I'm Avishai Artsy. Thanks for listening.